I would say, do you want the good news or the bad news? The good news is, next week we start studying the good news of the gospel. The bad news is, one more night of hearing the bad news, that you and I are sinners deserving the just condemnation of God. So we've been working through this opening section on the bad news, running from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. I've seen this has been feeling like a, a courtroom trial. It feels like we, the readers, we are in the dock with all the Gentiles and all the Jews who have ever lived, and there's Paul on the opposing bench, and he is prosecuting the case for God, and he's been laying out all the incriminating evidence very thoroughly and methodically, And he has been presenting the irrefutable case that we, all of humanity, stand guilty and condemned because of our sin before our holy God. And the way that Paul has prosecuted this case has been brilliant. Back in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, Gentiles, you are condemned condemned because the truth of God's been made plain in creation and we've rejected it. Uh, Condemned because of our idolatry. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've chosen to worship the created rather than the creator. Condemned because we are immoral. And then in chapter 2, Paul has exposed the Jew and the moral person, the religious person, as those who also stand condemned of cosmic treason against God. Now the really worrying thing, the terrifying thing, as we come to Paul's concluding remarks, is that if we are found guilty, the punishment is not 20 years imprisonment. It is not a substantial monetary fine. No, if there is a guilty verdict, it demands a sentence of eternal death and damnation. And there is no opportunity for appeal. There will be no rerun of this trial. And so in many ways, this is a really sobering section of God's Word. And as we come to chapter 3, verses 1 and 20, where Paul's about to sum up and make his concluding remarks, he really wants to put the final nail in the coffin, as it were, in this case. Just as he's about to speak, it's as if a voice rises up in protest and says, Objection, Your Honor! Objection! And the voice is the voice of the Jews. They know they stand condemned. But they want to protest their innocence. And so, as we work through the first opening verses, we're going to hear four objections that these Jews are so keen to make. Look at verse 1. Remember what Paul's just been arguing at the end of verse chapter 2? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you've received the law. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. None of them will give you immunity in the day of judgment. And so they, they come. Objection. What advantage then, Paul, has it to be a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? You see, they hear Paul's argument and they're thinking, well, wait a minute. Since we were little babies, our parents told us we are of the most blessed people in all the world. We're chosen by God. We've been given his law. 
We were circumcised. We bear the covenant sign. And Paul, it sounds like you've become anti-Semitic. You hate the Jews now that you're a Christian. It sounds like, Paul, there is no value, there is no advantage in being a Jew. And you know, in many ways we could ask the same question. Is there any advantage of growing up in a Christian household? Is there any advantage of being baptized as a baby in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Is there any advantage of coming to a Bible-believing church if none of those things in of themselves can save you? Well, Paul hears the objection he gives, what we might think is a rather startling, a rather surprising answer. He's not being anti-Jewish. Because for Paul, he says in verse 2, there is much advantage, much in every way of being a Jew. And the thing that he draws particular attention to there in verse 2 is to begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says the Jews have been given the Old Testament scriptures. They've been given old, they've been given special revelation and as a result they have in the scriptures the knowledge of who God is and the knowledge of what God requires of man. Just as we were reading the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And Paul's been clear, just because you've got the scriptures, in one sense, it is no, no way of guaranteeing you immunity on the day of judgment. The difference is, is you need the scriptures to be opened up to you by the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of the heart, and the Holy Spirit needs to work in your heart and bring you to faith and salvation. And you know, there is advantage of growing up in a Christian household. There is advantage of being baptized as a baby. There is advantage of coming to a church that preaches the Bible. It's because you've got the privilege that so many people do not have. You know who God is. You know what God requires. Now the prayer is, with all these privileges, is that God by his spirit would open up our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus and to believe in him. That is his doing. But there is enormous advantage. And so the judge says, objection, overruled. The Jew sitting there in the courtroom, he he can't stay silent. In verses 3 and 4, he comes with his second objection. Now it's stated in the form of two questions. What if some were unfaithful? Now the some there refers to Jews. What if some of the Jews were unfaithful to God? Now, we're studying numbers in the morning, and we've got a classic example of how God's people were so often unfaithful to God. They hardened their hearts and rebelled. Second question, does their faithful faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You see, since God's people were chosen, they were blessed by God, bestowed with these special privileges, the recipients of the law, what if those people who hardened their hearts in unbelief, who, who wandered in the wilderness and would eventually die, 
Would their faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Would their faithlessness put an end to God's plans and purposes for his people? Now, this is the subjections are just a wee bit hard because of where Paul goes, so, so sometimes it's quite hard to follow the logic. Paul responds with an emphatic no. By no means. God forbid it. Perish the thought. Certainly not. It is wholly unthinkable to suggest that God would ever be unfaithful. Even when God's people are faithless and unfaithful, God remains faithful. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament, and this is where the logic gets a bit confusing. He says, remember Psalm 51, verse 4. We've just sung it. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So remember King David? Remember he was unfaithful? Remember what he did? He he, he slept with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah. He covered up his sin. Did his unfaithfulness stop the faithfulness of God? No. God was faithful in this regard. He judged. He judged David that you may be justified, proved right in your words, and prevail when you are judged. And so what Paul says here in part, no, 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 you've got to understand, God will always remain faithful and God will always remain faithful in his judgment. Now, that's a bit hard to take in because the judge would now announce objection over rule. Paul's right, that's how it works. And then the Jew says, hold on, hold on, hold on. My mind is thinking, let me get this right. If my unfaithfulness proves God's faithfulness and his judgment right, then surely the logic is I can continue to be sinful and that will just showcase more of God's judgment, his righteousness. You see, that's what I'm hearing. You know, David was unfaithful. God was proved right in his just judgment. Therefore, if I continue to be sinful, then I'm going to showcase God's glory and God's justice. And then the Jewish mind thinks a little more and says, but hold up a minute. That would make God unjust. Because he's inflicting wrath on me for being sinful, and in this perverted way he gets glory. So if you want to see objection number three, verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And Paul says, no, 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 by no means. God forbid it. The way these people are talking in Paul's mind, it is is absolutely ridiculous. And so he responds with this statement, for then how could God judge the world? You don't get it. God re- remains just. He's not unrighteous in inflicting his judgment. He is the just judge of the world. He will always show himself righteous. And so the judge then announces, okay, Paul, you're right. Objection overruled. And there's a fourth and final objection. You see, the Jewish mind is working and it thinks, well, <laughs> Hold on a minute, hold on a minute, right? Okay, God has to judge, get it. God's judgment's just, okay. But why then? Verse 8. Not, or or verse 7 rather. 
But if through my lies, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? So, so he's like, come on. If, if I lie, God's glory is advanced. If I go on doing evil, good comes of it because God's perfect judgment works all things together for the good, then, then Paul, surely we Jews can continue sinning. God gets the glory. We don't need to face real judgment at the end. Now, Paul will give an in-depth argument to this very issue in Romans chapter 6. But, in the context of this trial, Paul's response when he hears them make this perverse argument, let's just go on sinning so God's glory may abound. Let's just go on sinning so God may bring good of it. Paul's simple answer is to say their condemnation is just. Or we could say, Paul looks at them and he says, you should just be justly condemned right now. That you would even say such a thing. You so do not understand the holy, just judgment of God. And then you can imagine Paul picking up his glass of water, clearing his throat, and saying, what then? As his introduction to his concluding remarks, what then? And here Paul comes with the charge that he has been seeking to prove from chapter 1, verse 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Here's the charge. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And this statement under sin means all people are sinners. All people deserve the just penalty for their sin. To be under sin means to be enslaved in, to be held captive to the power of sin. It means in no uncertain terms that we are all defiled by the pollution of sin. And this is where Paul's charge begins. He, 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 he stated it in chapter 1 verse 18, we're all unrighteous, we're all wicked. We all deserve the righteous, the righteous wrath of God. And in chapter 3, verse 23, he's going to say it again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here is his devastating charge. Now, you want to know another advantage of growing up a Jew? Is that most Jews, when they were little kids, they, they sang psalms. And then they sang the psalms in their teenagers and they sang the psalms in their adults. And most Jews would have memorized all the psalms off by heart. And if you ever said to a Jew, so, so when I was growing up, right, I'd say to my mum, mum, can I watch telly? She would say, do not set your eyes on worthless things. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Mum, can I do this? And every time she'd give an answer, it would be from Scripture. Her mind was just saturated with Scripture. Well, if you said to Paul, Paul, what's sin? Uh, Paul, what, what, what's total depravity? He would give you an answer straight from this Psalter. So what's interesting is that in verse 10 through verse 18, Paul gives this phenomenal, in his summing up remarks, this phenomenal definition of the doctrine of total 
depravity. And it comes straight from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Nearly every line he says is just a quote from the Old Testament. From the Psalter. And that's a privilege of growing up as a Jew. Is to know what the scriptures principally teach concerning who God is and what God requires of man. Now, I need to say to you, as we work through this, I'm not going to exegete it verse by verse. That was my plan originally, and I realized we'd be here for a long time. So, I just want to show you it in the most comprehensive and brief way. When Paul starts unpacking how depraved human beings are, he illustrates it in this way. From top of our bodies to the bottom of our feet, you and I are wicked. You know what the, the, the doctrine of total depravity means? It does not mean that every single one of us is totally depraved in our lifestyle as we possibly could be. Not every single one of us are going to be as bad as Adolf Hitler. But what it does mean is that all of us, all of our faculties, from the top of our bodies to the bottom of them, have been marred by sin. We've inherited the sin nature of Adam. We are corrupted in mind, body, heart, soul, by sin. So look at verse 11, right? This is his opening statement. No one is righteous, no, not one. You can get a more comprehensive statement than that, right? No one is righteous. But Paul wants you to know that you are not righteous in your mind and your heart. No one understands in their minds. And no one seeks God in their inner being. Verse 12, he speaks to the will. All have turned aside, that is, we've all chosen to turn away from God. Together with our wills, we have become worthless. None of us choose to do good. No, not even one. So Paul addresses the mind, the heart, the will. Verse 13, he now indicts the throat, the tongue, the lips. Throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And then in verse 14, he charges our mouths. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then in verse 15 through 17, he condemns our feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And then in verse 18, he denounces our eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See what Paul's done there brilliantly? He's going through every part of our body, and he's testified how it is marred, it is ruined, by sin. So there's one American preacher, and he, he describes what Paul's doing here. It's like a comprehensive autopsy of a spiritually dead sinner. Imagine a sinner lying on a table, and then he's examined in every little part of his body, from top to bottom, everything marred by sin now 
whether you're aware of it or not, but see when we sang Psalm 51, do you know what all of us were singing to one another? All of us were singing, we're, we're this. You realize that? So, so in Psalm 51, we, we, we all sung before God. For I know my own transgressions. I can see my sinful plight. You, you only have I offended and done evil in your sight. Verse 5. From my birth I have been sinful. Such the nature I received. Sinful from my first beginning. In my mother's womb conceived. We've come before God tonight. We've acknowledged before him. We are totally depraved. And as we acknowledge that truth, you can hear heaven's gavel hit the wood. The Supreme Court of Heaven has reached the final verdict. All of us, all of us, hear your sentence condemned. Condemned and sentenced to eternal death. I don't know if any of you have ever been on trial. There was a a well-known politician, Jonathan Aitken. That was was his name. He's a Christian. I think he's now serving as a vicar. But on one occasion he shared his testimony... And he spoke about that moment where all through the trial he was hoping, he was longing that he would be, he wouldn't hear the words guilty. But he said, do you know the worst moment is when you hear the words guilty and then you're marched by the police officer down the steps of the old bailey and there's a prison right there, communal prison, and you're put behind bars. And in that moment you realize I'm guilty, and I've just been sentenced to my punishment. He said it's a terrifying thing. Grown men weeping their eyes out because they've become conscious of the reality. They are guilty as charged. In church tonight, we need to know that before Almighty God, under holy gaze, you and I are guilty as charged. And this is one of the most sobering realities. It should be one of the most humbling realities. Next time you're in an argument with your your friend, your spouse, a parent, just remember this, you're totally depraved. Next time you do something that's sinful, know that you can admit the reality of Psalm 51. From your first beginning, you have been sinful. In your mother's womb, you were conceived, you were sinful. It's the reality of who you are. You know, one of the hardest things as Christians is sometimes admitting it. You're in an argument and you want to blame everything else. I'm tired. I didn't mean what I said. No, you did mean what you say because it's come from your sinful heart and out of the abundance of your sinful heart, your mouth will speak. I didn't mean what I said. No, you did mean what you said because the thought was in your head. You're sinful. This this passage, is this section of Romans is trying to be drilled deep down into us. You are more wicked than you realize. You are a sinner. Now, as Paul, as the vinyl verdict has been reached, in verses 19 to 20, the, the last statement that is issued is, is this, the indictment of condemnation. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And we know from what we've been studying, everyone is under the law. 
And the purpose of the divine law in the courtroom was to show us that we fall short of God's standard. We have missed the mark. We've been judged by the law. We're accountable to the law. And we are condemned by the law. And so look at what Paul explains as our response. So that every mouth may be stopped, literally closed. Do you know what our response is as we hear this guilty verdict? Silence. You're accountable to God. He now has every right, not just to take you down the steps to a prison, but every right to cast you into the eternal torment forever that is hell. And there is nothing you can plead. There is nothing you can say. There will be no rerun of this trial. And Paul, just so that he can make it absolutely clear, says in verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You know, you can imagine a Jew, you can imagine a Gentile saying, man, I, I, I lived a good life, I kept the law, I wanted to try and live the law. I know I was totally depraved, but I wasn't as bad as other people. And this verse, actually, verse 20, is that it's probably the clearest verse in all of the Bible to make clear that not one person can ever earn their salvation by keeping the law. No one can be declared justified. No one can be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. Because here's the purpose of the law. Final statement in verse 20. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law that was used in this trial against us was to show us that we are sinners. Now I did say, do you want the good news or the bad news? Truly the bad news is this is the final verdict. And this is a dire and this is a depressing passage and this should leave us all silent and this should leave us all feeling hopeless and helpless. But, but... But the gloriously great news and good news is that the judge who has sentenced us to eternal death is the same judge who has provided the means by which you and I can be declared righteous. The judgment that you and I deserve, the just judgment... He poured out on his son at the cross for his people. You see, we're coming now to this adventure beginning in chapter 3 verse 21 where we're going to be unpacking and holding up and showcasing and just glorying in the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is this. We all stand guilty and condemned, but the same judge who issues this verdict is the same judge who issues this invitation. Come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone and in him alone, not by your good works, not by any efforts to keep the law, and you can be declared righteous you can be justified just as if i had never sinned just as if i had lived the perfect life just as if i was christ because in our union with christ we get all that is christ what's incredible is that this 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 diagnosis of the physician 
in this court trial and then on the mortuary table, the same one who's diagnosed us as sinners and guilty is the same one who's got the remedy, the prescription to heal us, to change us. And it comes in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I heard a preacher saying, you know, just as you're being delivered over to your eternal death sentence, imagine that moment, you know, you've got the, the, the noose of the law around you. You're in the gallows. They put the hood over your head and your face. They're ready to remove the trap door beneath your feet. You're about to be sentenced to death. And then God steps forward and says, My son has died on the cross. He's lived a life you could not live. He died a death that you ought to die. He's been raised gloriously from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Believe in him. Trust him. And receive the gift that you could, have, that you could not earn, that you did not deserve. The gift of his righteousness. The good news is coming. And it is so good. It's something we can sing about, shout about. And it is the truth that we must live out. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the way that you have taken us through this section where you have brought us face to face with the reality of who we are. God, we are silenced. Our mouths are stopped. Everything you see about us is true. God, we are more wicked than we've ever dared to imagine. You're holy than we could ever begin to get our minds around. And yet, as this passage is pointing us, you're also more gracious and loving than we've ever understood. You would take us unholy sinners, wicked, and that you would forgive us and remake us into the image of your Son. And so we pray that as we begin our adventure into the good news of the gospel, that you would fill our hearts and our minds both with a hunger and thirst for your truth, that you would above all fill our hearts with glad praise and adoration because we can truly rejoice that instead of receiving eternal death, that in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of eternal life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.